Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Gunturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. Hope you guys enjoy. Hello everybody, I have Wanda Strandberg with me today. She lives on Camino Island in state of Washington with her husband, one dog, two cats and two birds. She enjoys bird watching, nature, photography and knitting. She is an alcoholic in recovery for nearly 26 years and an advocate against domestic violence. She shares her experience, strengths, and hope to let others know it is possible to overcome and live a happy, fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's it's an honor and it's my pleasure to be here. So Thank you. Thank um, you. Please go ahead and explain your story and the yes. Yeah, you bet. uh where to start so i will start briefly very briefly with kind of my upbringing i was uh born into a middle maybe not upper middle class but you know middle class family uh i have two sisters and a brother uh, i have one of one of my sisters is a twin sister and the other one is older my brother is a couple of years younger than i am so we lived on 5 acres it was a rural uh, area and my father raised game birds and pheasants and so we always had animals around um and i there isn't anything specifically in my family that i can recall that would have affected me personally other than you know it was just an average normal quote unquote yeah, normal family and now i'm not sure i'm going to call my family normal <laughs> but i did then yeah so growing up it was a normal normal childhood everything was good um there were a couple of incidents when i was in school that traumatized me a bit um the first one was uh probably first grade i want to say first or second grade i'm not i i, I believe it was first grade but anyway i peed my pants and i was absolutely mortified of course and all the kids you know made fun of me and everything well we got through that um and then the second one the second incident was i was in um when i was in 5th grade i was in a mixed classroom 6th and 5th graders we were given a homework assignment to bring an article from the newspaper and we were going to read it out loud and report on it and the article that i brought i believed said woman found wrapped in blanket what it actually said was woman found raped in blanket and one of the older students of course had to correct me <laughs> in front of the rest of the class and i didn't really know exactly what that meant i didn't i didn't understand the word rape um but i knew that there was some kind of a connotation about it that was you know not a subject that was talked about a lot at that time so anyway that was that also was a, a mortifying incident to me probably doesn't seem like a big deal but it did sort of shape me in that i became I, i i was always shy i was always kind of withdrawn and shy i didn't like to talk in front of classrooms and and that kind of thing but it made me even more so it made me more of an introvert and uh, my twin sister on the other hand was was the the extrovert <laughs> between the two of us so 
so moving on, we get into uh, junior high, which is, you know, junior high is junior high. And I don't think much has changed there is sort of uh, you're trying to find your place and, you know, be part of the part of the, the norm, society, whatever you want to call it. Um, didn't really feel like I belonged pretty anywhere, really. I wasn't, I wasn't in any kind of a group. I tried to get involved in some extracurricular things like cheerleading and whatever. And, uh, you know, it was just never quite good enough, I guess. Or that was my feeling was I was never quite good enough to, to, to get there, even though I tried, I tried, but I was rejected and it was like uh, heartbreaking. Um, never had a boyfriend all through high school, you know, never went to the dances, never went to the proms or anything. I did try to fit in with my own little group of friends. Um, we were not the popular kids, but we were not the, <laughs> we were not the worst of the worst and we weren't the best of the best either. So. We started, uh, my friends and I started dabbling in some uh, illegal substances uh, in high school. Not a lot, but you know, enough. And uh, I had a friend who's, whose brother was a, a motorcycle um, gang member and he kind of had an influence on, on her. And she in turn, you know, brought that to us and we said, sure, why not? You know, we'll, we'll help, we'll, uh, we'll help you do we'll help you drink this or we'll help you eat that or whatever it was you know um and then moving on I went to college not because I really knew what I was doing or what I wanted to do but it was because I felt it was expected of me it's what everybody wanted me to do so I, off I go to college where I finally um finally met a boy that took an interest in me you know so I was like wow, okay. <laughs> um, and uh, that whole, and it, how can I put this delicately? That whole thing was um, uh, a, a, a learning experience. I went off to college to learn how to have a relationship with a boy, drink, and that was about it. So it was a big party all the time. Uh, needless to say, I didn't last in college very long. Uh, after the end of the first semester, the the uh, college administration asked me to leave. So home I go, <laughs> back to my parents, um, feeling bad because I, you know, didn't succeed again. Uh, still didn't feel like I belonged anywhere, and it was just kind of the way I always felt was that I just didn't really belong. Um, and even though there were things that I did that were were good, um, for instance, I had a horse uh, that I had had received as a gift when I was 13, I think 13, 14. Um, and it was a young horse, was not trained yet. And I raised that horse and trained him so that I could ride him. And we went to shows and we showed and we did different things. And that was like the best thing in my life, the absolute best thing in my life. Um, up to you know getting out of college and then moving on trying to move on with my life um my uh my parents found out that this boyfriend that i met in college and i were again doing illegal substances and they um i was 18 just but uh they you know said 
nope, you're not going to see this guy anymore. And of course, I was angry at my parents. I was angry at everything. <laughs> it was like they sent me to see a psychiatrist and I, said, you know, I didn't talk much. But the one thing that came out of that was she has trouble making decisions. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, and I still struggle with that to this day that a decision is put before me. And if I don't make a decision, one will be made for me. I've learned that, right? I've learned that if I don't decide, one will be made for me. And oftentimes I get paralyzed by having to make the decision. And it's like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But anyway, uh, so yeah, the, the self-esteem of being introverted, of not feeling like I belonged really played a role, I think, in, in what I did, the choices that I made going forward. And turning 21, when it became legal for me to drink, we, we kind of steered away from the substances, so to speak, and went more to the, to the alcohol. And I, in the meantime, you know, I'm, I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. I'm thinking that the way to a man's heart is, is by having sex with him. Um, so there were a lot of uh, one night stands, a lot of failed relationships. Um, and I, I met a guy at the tavern that I used to go to all the time. And he and I, uh, he and I, became close, we became intimate, and we eventually decided we should get married. Uh, so we get engaged, I get pregnant, we get married, he's working, and he's not really happy. So I say, well, you know, why don't you find another job? And, and in the meanwhile, I'm working too. Um, uh, I have a baby, I have a baby girl. Um, after six months, I go back to work. He's working, he's miserable, he's not happy. Um, I said, why don't you find something that you want and then, and then quit your job, you know, get a different job. <laughs> well, he quit his job, but he didn't go back to work. And what he wanted to do was live off the land, right? He wanted to live off of the land and, uh, so, so we moved to a little um, forest area by a river in his parents' A-frame cabin that they had there. That was their recreational property, okay? Uh, so we moved there. Um, meanwhile, get pregnant and I have a second child. Um, and he's sitting in the garden watching things grow and I'm trying to earn some money because I'm thinking we have to have some money. We can't, it doesn't work that way, you know? So, although I'm sure there are people, you know, some of the, the survivalists and whatnot can do it, but I just didn't feel like that, like that was really what, it wasn't really what I wanted. It was what he wanted. And so I'm trying to be the dutiful, uh, obedient wife, like I thought I was supposed to be. Um, and I didn't realize it at the time, but in looking back, I came to the conclusion that that was actually my first 
experience in a domestic abuse relationship. Um, he was controlling, he was isolating me, he was um, you know, just dictating everything about my life. Um, if I talked on the phone with anyone, which originally we didn't even have a telephone, um, but when, because I was pregnant, I said, we need to have a telephone in case of an emergency, right? So anyway, this was the days before cell phones. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm old. I'm old. Okay. I'm old. Oh, I know the days <laughs> before cell phone too. So don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, we, um, so we had the phone. If I talked to anybody, you know, it was immediately, well, what did they say? He, you know, he wanted to know all of the details and and I didn't understand at the time that that was uh, uh, domestic abuse. Well, after about four years, four and a half years or so of being married, I'd had enough and I just was unhappy. And I said, I, I want a divorce. So I took the two girls and I left and I moved to Oregon to be closer to where my family had migrated to. And uh, I, uh, was just full of shame, full of guilt, um, because I was the first one ever in my family to get a divorce in my entire, even in my extended family. Okay? As far as I knew, I was the only one who had ever gotten divorced. And, you know, you just didn't do that in those days. Um, you tried to make it work, and uh, but I just, I couldn't. And um, anyway, full of shame, full of guilt. I started drinking pretty heavily um, and it just became easy to console myself with beer. That was my choice. Beer was really my choice, although I would drink just about any kind of alcohol, but beer was my choice. It was inexpensive and easy to get and blah, 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 blah. So, so I'm living, I'm, I'm renting a house there and um, my dad had introduced me to a, a man who was working for him and, uh, and he was a good looking guy, tall drink of water, good looking guy. Um, and he showed up at my door one night with a half case of beer under his arm. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is my kind of guy, right? <laughs> Come on in, we'll have some beer. And, uh, and anyway, so we, we developed a, relationship um, <laughs> uh, that uh, it, it was kind of funny because he he was different um, he didn't seem to be he had graduated from high school but he didn't seem to be all that well educated first that was my personal thought and uh, uh, but he was a nice nice looking guy and you know we had some things in common we like to go fishing we like to do things and go hiking and whatnot well um long story short i got pregnant um he wanted to get married and i really had to think about that because i just wasn't just wasn't feeling that it was the right thing to do but i did it anyway i said okay we'll get married so that gave him a license to take control. And he, <clears throat> excuse me, um, 
So here we are, two practicing alcoholics um, living together. We have a child together. He's taking control. He is intimidating just because of his size. You know, he's this big, tall guy. Um, my two girls were afraid of him. Um, and he became abusive. He became emotionally abusive. He was sexually abusive um, with me and um, could have been physically abusive, although I didn't see, I, I saw the potential, let's put it that way. I knew it was possible, um, but he refrained most of the time from getting physical with me other than the sexual part, um, he refrained. Although he did end up, we got in an argument one night and he ended up pulling a gun on me. Um, called the sheriff, the sheriff showed up. Um, the sheriff really couldn't do anything <laughs> unless he had shot me. And I was like, what? And I said, okay, you know, we'll we'll simmer down, we'll behave ourselves, and uh, and they left. And meanwhile, I had sent my my children uh, over to to be with my parents, so they were out of the situation. Um, and he did at that point get physical with his uh, older daughter from a previous marriage, um, and I sent her out of the house. And I actually, she was the one who called the sheriff for us. Um, so this went on for uh, you know a little while longer. And I finally said, again, after about four years, four and a half years or something in that number, I guess, <laughs> I'd had enough. And I was like, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I don't want my children to be hurt. I, I don't want to live a life like this. This is, it's, I was miserable. And I had gone to see a psych, uh, psychologist, uh, a counselor. I'd gone to see a counselor at one point and because I was so unhappy and I went and I talked to her and she said, do you drink? And I thought, well, yeah, but that's not, I, this is not why I'm here to see you. I'm here to see you because I'm miserable in my marriage and I want to, I know I need to do something. And it was like, well, I think first you need to, to address your drinking problem. <laughs> And I left there so disappointed. I was like, ah, this was not the answer that I was, that I wanted. Um, and of course, you know, I'm an alcoholic in denial at that point. And uh, yeah, it was just, it was, you know, when you, when you look back on these things, you can, you can have a better understanding of what was going on at the time. But when you're in the middle of it, you're blind. You know, you're just blind. Um, so anyway, I uh, met with an attorney and we decided that, you know, he, we were going to get a restraining order. He was going to be physically removed from the house by the sheriff. And, you know, we would get on with things. We would go ahead with the divorce proceedings. So the sheriff showed up to remove him from the household and he called <clears throat> the neighbor <laughs> who had a, a cabin there that was his recreational cabin. He'd come and visit on the weekends and we, we all became good friends. But anyway, uh, so my ex-husband called John and said, can I go stay in your place for a little while? And he didn't really explain what was going on. So 
so I take my kids and I go to my parents' house that was about a mile away, stayed there temporarily, and then came back to the house and discovered that he was living next door. And he stalked me. He stalked me. He would stand down at the end of the road and do this to me, point his finger like he had a gun in his hand and, you know, do this, pull the trigger. He was trying to intimidate me. He tried to do all kinds of things. Um, he reported me to the Department of Motor Vehicles and said I had seizures while I was driving, that I wasn't, you know, fit driver, especially with kids in the car. Um, he reported us to the IRS. He was trying to ruin me, um, both still <laughs> emotionally, financially. Um, and I, you know, he, he didn't actually touch me, but yeah, it was only a matter of time. It was only a matter of time before it would turn physical. And I knew that. Um, we finally, um, the, the community, we lived in a, in a small community. So, you know, by this time, of course, everybody knows what's going on. And uh, um, he, he couldn't get work anymore in the community. So he, he left and uh, got work um, on the other side of the mountains, which you know, we lived on one side and he went across the mountains and was working. And, Meanwhile, was had visitation rights to see our son. We, we got through the divorce. Um, he showed up at court and told the judge uh, that he knew that that my family had paid off the judge and that um, oh yeah, you should have been there. It was it was really it was a good show. Um, <laughs> anyway, he made this speech to the judge and then he walked out and he left. But I still had to sit there and go through the divorce proceedings and answer the judge's questions, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time it was done, and you know, it was like, yes, we're granting you the divorce and we're granting you custody, but there will be visitation. And I I, I actually left there disappointed because I I don't know, somehow I felt like this was going to be the answer to my misery that once that divorce was final everything was going to be great you know um but that's not what happened uh i got the divorce and everything basically was still the same i just didn't have a husband anymore i didn't have to live with this man anymore but i still had to participate in the visitation rights um you know so it was like every other weekend i'm handing our son off to this man who i'm worried is going to kidnap my son and take him somewhere or mistreat him somehow or do whatever so there was a lot of that going on um and of course i'm still drinking still drinking it was uh it became it became a need for me. It became a need for me. And this is what happens. Uh, not every alcoholic has this, I guess. Everybody's, everybody's a little bit different, but my experience was that there was a need. <clears throat> um, it, was, it was not only a habit, but it was, it was a necessity. I couldn't, couldn't get through the day without drinking. So, He's on the other side of the mountains and, you know, the visitations are getting fewer and 
and further between uh, because of one thing or another, he's busy or he can't do it or whatever. Um, so we're trying to get life back to normal, but I'm still drinking. My sister in the meantime, my twin sister in the meantime, is it has moved closer to uh, the vicinity. She's drinking heavily for whatever reason. I still don't exactly know, but anyway. We, we know that alcoholism runs in families, right? We know that there's a genetic side to it and we know there's just the, the physical side to it. So anyway, uh, so the family gets together, does the intervention and sends my sister to treatment for her alcoholism. And I'm thinking, yeah, I know I drink too much. Um, I should be more supportive of her and I should I should stop or at least not drink so much. So I tried, you know, I tried different things. I tried like only drinking on the weekends. I tried, you know, uh, only every other drink would be water or something. You know, I tried all these different things and, and uh, I just, I couldn't stop. I could not stop. I, um, I would drive the car past the store thinking I'm just I'm just going home. I'm not stopping. And the car would turn into the parking lot and park. And I'd get out and I'd go in and I'd buy a beer to take home with me. I worked at uh, housekeeping jobs. And most of the jobs that I did, you know, I would have a key. I would go in and I would clean house and, and, and then I would leave. So the people that I was working for generally were not home. I would go to their houses and uh, I would, this was not part of my plan, but it happened 99.9% .9 of the time. I would get into the house, I would go to the refrigerator, I would open the door and I would pull out a beer because most of them drink, you know. Um, and I would drink it and I would proceed to drink a whole six pack while I was there cleaning. And then I would leave and I would go to the store and I would buy <clears throat> a six pack of beer to replace the one I drank. I would go back to their house, replace the beer <laughs> and leave again. <laughs> now, <clears throat> it never dawned on me at that time to just buy a six pack of beer on my way to work, <laughs> take it with me <laughs> so I would have it. And then I wouldn't have to go to the store and replace the beer and you know, go through all that rigmarole. Never occurred to me, but that's the insanity of, I wasn't planning on drinking. It was not in my plan to, to drink that day, or at least not while I was at work. You know, I wasn't going to drink in the morning. I wasn't going to drink at work. I wasn't going to drink and drive. I wasn't going to do all of these things that I ended up doing. And I was very fortunate in that I never got a DUI. I did get pulled over, but I never got a DUI. You know, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't get in an accident. Um, there were all of these things that could have happened that didn't. So about a year, probably a year after my sister had gone through treatment and had been sober for a little while, um, my life was just going into the toilet. And 
um, my other sister, my older sister had offered a place for me to stay. And, uh, and I decided, yeah, I'm gonna get out of here, this place I'm renting, I'm gonna get out of here, I'm gonna go live with her for a little bit and get my act back together and, and we'll um, move on with our, with our lives, right? So, so we did that. I was having trouble with my oldest daughter at that point who was, was um, acting out because of all that they'd been through with me. And my twin sister said, I'm gonna take you to see this counselor that I know and to help you with your daughter. And I'm like, okay, okay. So the day that she's supposed to come, I'm getting ready in the morning and I'm having my beer before I go because I can't go anywhere now without having a beer. And we go, as soon as she arrived at the door, I went, uh, I know what this is about. She's taking me to treatment. This is my intervention. So she took me to treatment. I saw the counselor. We went through the, we went through the evaluation and he said, yeah, we think you would benefit from our intensive outpatient treatment, which involves uh, three nights a week for, I think it was something like eight weeks or more. Um, and then, you know, basically it's a year long program. So, um, but you know, I was kind of like, yeah, it's time, it's time. And uh, started going to uh, AA meetings and, and this all happened down in Oregon. And when I was about two, almost two years sober, um, I decided that I wanted to leave Oregon and move back to my home state of Washington. And I did with my kids, packed up my kids and we moved here. And uh, I got a job working at a veterinary clinic, which was like a dream job for me. Um, uh, my girlfriend had offered me a place to stay. So I stayed with her uh, for a couple of months until I had earned some money working, got an apartment. And then we finally ended up moving into a house and then I ended up buying a house. So, um, and all the while I'm going to these meetings and I am learning a lot, learning a lot about myself. And this is what, this is where I was able to turn things around and learn that one of the, one of the things that I learned through the process of recovery was I always had expectations on other people to change so that I would be okay. Um, because I wasn't happy inside. I didn't like living in my body. I didn't like being in my skin, but I couldn't understand for the longest time, <laughs> of course, why that was, you know? And once I got into recovery, I finally felt like I was where I belonged. And I started learning things and I started learning things about myself. And it was the biggest thing I think that I've gotten out of it is um, not only staying sober, yay, but um, <laughs> uh, how to do relationships, how to set boundaries, how to be able to come out of my shell, be confident in myself, and know that I don't need that person to change 
so I can be okay. I have to be okay first, right? I have to be okay with me. If this is a relationship that isn't going to work, that's okay. It's okay. It doesn't have to. Not every relationship is going to have to work. And I have, um, I am now married again for the third time <laughs> um, to a man who is also in recovery. And we do relationship differently than I have ever done with any man before because we know, you know, because we, we have learned, we know. And um, I started a, a home-based business at one point um, with an outfit called Janberry. Um, they were doing the press-on uh, vinyl nail wraps that were um, pressure and heat treated to stay on your, on your fingernails. And part of their group <clears throat> um, started a domestic violence campaign, uh, a fight against domestic violence campaign, excuse me. <laughs> they didn't start the domestic violence, they started the fight against it. And so they were doing fundraising for the fight against domestic violence. And that, um, of course, touched me uh, as a victim, as a survivor. And I became involved with that and I went through their advocacy training. So I am now uh, a domestic violence advocate, um, a fight against domestic violence advocate. I always say that wrong. Um, and you know, I'm here to let people know that they don't have to remain victims. But <laughs> if there are drugs and alcohol involved, you gotta do something about it, you know? And I would, my experience says that drugs and alcohol are involved in domestic violence situations the majority of the time. I don't know what the actual statistics are. I could not, I couldn't recite those to you, but I'm sure there are statistics out there that will tell you that drugs and alcohol are often a factor in domestic violence. And of course, my concern over the last going on two years now is because of the lockdowns and everything, people having to hunker down and, and, uh, and stay in place, that there's been a rise in domestic violence cases um, because we, can't get away from it you know there's no escape you're hunkering down to stay safe and keep everybody else safe but you're in a dangerous situation so I would encourage people to make sure they have uh, numbers for their local uh, domestic violence uh, advocacies um, there are county there, there's city help there's county help um, there's a national hotline um, and that I, I would encourage anybody who is, is currently experiencing domestic violence in their homes to make sure that they have those numbers that they can call and set up something with a, a close friend, um, a watchword, a call word, you know, or say if something is happening at home and you need help, you call me and you tell me you want my recipe for spaghetti sauce or something. You know, and that will be my cue that you're in a dangerous situation and I need to call for help for you. So those are the kinds of things you can set up 
you know, unknown to, to your partner. Um, I was very lucky uh, in that I had a, a, a very supportive family around me. Um, I had, you know, a, a supportive community around me. Um, so I was able to get away from the situation uh, without, although I did have a restraining order, which was like basically no better than the piece of paper it was written on. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I did, I, I did have backup, right? I did have backup. So, um, and uh, I do, Sadly, need to report that that ex-husband, after I moved to Washington State, uh, died of a massive coronary, um, which now was sad. And I was, uh, um, I was able to come to a place of forgiveness with him, um, not forgetting that what he did was was terrible, um, but. He was a sick man, you know, he was a very sick man. He didn't know how to get help. He didn't even know enough to ask for help. You know, he was in denial the whole time uh, with his alcoholism and um, his upbringing. There were just so many things um, in his case that, you know, I could, I could see after the fact, um, you know, that, that he basically kind of backed himself into a corner with his behaviors and didn't know any better, didn't know how to get out of it, didn't know that he needed help. Um, so it was a sad, it was a very sad situation for him. Um, you know, I still say he's an asshole because uh, he, <laughs> he was. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, he was also a human being is also a very sick human being, and I've, I've been able to forgive that. You know, I was able to forgive him as a, as a human being, just not the actions, the choices that he made. So, um, but you know, it's possible. If, it, if, it, if it's possible for me, it's possible for everybody. And I just want people to know that, that there, you're not alone. There are others who are going through the same situations, same problems, um, alcoholics and victims of domestic violence alike. Um, and we help each other. That's what we do. We help each other. Absolutely, we do. Yes, absolutely, we do. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> absolutely. First off, uh, I'm so thankful that you are doing the work that you are doing. You got trained professionally and you are trying to help other women. And mm -hmm. I really applaud you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, the questions I have, um, you did mention that you were emotionally and sexually abused in the second marriage. Mm -hmm. Usually when people say they were sexually abused, being in married relationship, nobody sees it as an abuse and everybody mm -hmm. feels like, yeah, it's after all your husband, it is his right to do anything on you or like, yeah, you belong to him so he can do anything. How do you answer to that kind of a question? <laughs> um, that's, that's, a, that's a good yeah. question. That's a very good question. So I, there's, there's a, for me, um, 
the lines were crossed when uh, it, it was no longer an intimate loving act. It was a demanding, um, it, it was more of a demanding act than a, a consensual loving act. It was, um, plus it involved other people. Um, there were other people involved in his sexual fantasies that, you know, he coerced uh, to become involved. And so that, you know, uh, that alone goes against uh, my religion. <laughs> um, he was not a religious man. He, he was a self-proclaimed atheist, okay? I had a belief, uh, but I turned away from it um, because I didn't believe that I was getting help. Um, I know better now. I know better now. I know better now that God was there the whole time and was watching out for me and actually protected me from much, much worse. I mean, the, the things could have been so much worse. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that's where the difference is for me. It's, it, it becomes abuse when it's no longer a mutually consensual, loving part of your relationship. Um, even though we're married, you know, even though we, we, we have that commitment as a married couple to each other, neither one owns the other. Absolutely. Yeah, marriage license is not a license to control, manipulate, um, or own another person's body or their mind or their first book or, you know, any of that. Um, if you, and, and I would strongly <laughs> recommend also that people, you know, have more conversations before they get married about what the expectations are. You know, I always tell people, don't ask me about don't ask me for advice about marriage or relationships because look what I've done. <laughs> I'm not the best one to ask, okay? I have learned a lot though. I've learned a lot. So, uh, you know, the, and the only thing that I have, and I think I told you this the other day, the only thing that I have is my experience, my own experience. And that's the only thing that I have to share that I am in the hopes that somebody will get something out of it, so. Do you call this sexual abuse as a rape personally? The reason I want to ask specific questions about this is I have been asked questions like that. When I say like, yes, I've been sexually abused or like I've been raped by my husband, uh, the very next question is, how do you even call your husband raping you? It's, it's after all your husband. So I'm trying to get another perspective from you uh, to hear that. Yes. Um, and my answer to that question is going to be, uh, my belief is yes, there were times when I would call it rape. Um, I didn't at the time, but looking back on it, I would say definitely, yes, there were times when I would say I was raped by my husband many times. And, and usually it was uh, 
because, or not because, it usually involved the fact that I was more or less incapacitated by alcohol. There was no fight in me. There was nothing that I, you know, there, was, there wasn't even a, a part of me that said, yeah, I want to do this. There was just a part of me that said, whatever, you know, <laughs> just lay back and whatever. It's like, okay. Um, and that's kind of where it was. It was like, oh, whatever. Um, so yeah, so he, he could have his way with me when he wanted to. Um, and there were other times when it was a more loving type intimacy relationship where we would have sexual intercourse and, and it would be it would be nice you know but the other times not so much it wasn't really that nice um so yeah. other question that i have when you were mentioning that uh he was so controlling even he'll ask you questions when you were on the phone and like whom are you talking to what kind of a conversation is that is that he carries like a doubt on your character that you will be with someone else or like why is that controlling capacity there um probably i um that was my first husband and and he well my second husband did was kind of the same way too but um my first husband definitely was i think there was some jealousy going on i think that because we were married, he his expectation was my attention should be devoted to him and what he wanted rather than anything else. Um, even to the point of, you know, the kids. It's like we have kids together, but that's a that's a different part of the situation. And you are you still belong to me in a way i mean he wasn't as bad as my second husband in that regard but i i think there was that feeling of you belong to me and you know you will answer my questions you will tell me what you're up to um there may have been i don't i don't know if it, i don't think i ever really gave him any reasons to not trust me but there probably was an underlying mistrust or at least jealousy on his part that made him need to know <laughs> what was going on. Who was I talking to? What was your conversation? And, uh, you know, what did you say? What did they say? What? Can I please have a conversation with my girlfriend without... <laughs> without you wanting to know everything oh yeah that's always there even for me uh any phone call doesn't matter even if i call my own uh, mom and my dad or anything even that has to be on a speaker and i have to talk to them only on speaker i didn't i was never allowed to talk to anybody personally by myself yeah. whether it is a friend whether it's a parent sibling it doesn't matter. It it has to be on speaker. Even my office meetings, if I have to take them from house, yes, it has to be on speaker. Mm -hmm. And he says, you might be pretending talking to somebody saying that you are in a meeting, but the other person might be so different. So I have to listen to the conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah. how long will the other person really enjoy the conversation when I'm like talking to a person like in a meeting? And if he wants, she wants to talk to me on something else. Right. I was not even allowed to talk to female. Uh, that's a whole different thing, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
I don't know what's the problem there, but yeah, I was always having that kind of a problem with him. Yeah. My second husband, um, I bought a horse uh, during that marriage and because I had still, you know, that was the one thing in my youth that made me feel really good that I had a connection with and everything. So I had been wanting a horse for a long time. Um, and I'd gone through a couple horses in, in, during the course of my life, but um, uh, but I bought this young horse. And um, at one point when we were arguing, he, I was making payments for this horse. You know, I was working, I was making payments. He sent me out the door said you get dressed up in your sexiest looking outfit and you go to the bars and you prostitute yourself so you can make money to pay for the horse otherwise you're not getting the money to pay for the horse okay yeah i went out the door in tears i drove down the road in tears I turned around and I came back and I said, no, I'm not gonna I no. hear you. I know what it is like. Yep. There's that intimidation factor and there's like, and, and, and people don't understand sometimes. It's like, why do you stay in that relationship? That was my next and, question. I was about to ask that. No, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> why do you stay in in that relationship? So, um, for me, you know, it was the fear of losing my children because, of course, he made those threats that he would take the children away from me. Um, that he would uh, leave me broke, which, you know. <laughs> pretty much did but um <laughs> you know there were all of these things all of these unknowns that had me backed into a corner fearful so very fearful and i i couldn't think straight i couldn't think past that to understand that i was completely capable of taking care of myself i was completely capable of starting over and doing what I needed to do to take care of myself. But at that point in my life, I lacked the confidence. I lacked the self-esteem. I lacked, um, I lacked God <laughs> for one thing. Uh, you know, God was not in my life at that point, although he really was, but I didn't realize it at the time. And this man was so intimidating to me, uh, that I, I just, I could not see my way out until I finally had enough and said, I have to, I cannot, I cannot do this anymore. I cannot subject my children to this anymore because of course they were affected too and he was abusive to them as well. Um, he forced my girls to walk around the house without closing. And these are girls who are five and what were they at the time? Five and, and eight, nine at the time. Um, he did things to our little boy um, to intimidate him. And he was very, I mean, he was, he was barely, barely toddling. If 
if he didn't eat his food, um, you know, he, uh, for any of them, if they didn't eat their food, it was like, you're going to eat this food or you're going to have it for breakfast or you're going to, you know, you're going to, there were always threats to them, always threats. And at one point he's telling, he's telling our son, and I, I hope I can say this and if not, please um, yeah. edit it out, but um, he's telling my son, say there is no good gook except a dead gook. And my son is looking at him like, what? I don't, my son doesn't understand what it means. My son doesn't have a clue what any of it means. But he is telling him over and over and over again, say it, say it, you say this, you say, there is no good gook except a dead gook. And I'm like, don't say those things. Maybe do not say those things. I am not going to raise my children that way, you know? Oh, yeah, and you know, there were other things, there were other things too, but that, I, that one sticks out in my mind as, as one against my son that he, and he just you know I could see my son just kind of going back and back and back into his chair you know trying to get away from this man who's pointing his finger in his face and telling him to say these things and we don't treat children we just don't I'm sorry we don't treat children anyway yeah so you I had enough and I had to get out and I got the help I needed and I got out. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. You said you were scared oh, while you're drinking and uh, driving. Yes, touch wood. Nothing happened ever. But were you really scared that something is going to happen and you wanted to stop, but you couldn't control your drinking uh, thoughts or anything? Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. There were times... Um, where I there were times where I I would I would drive of course I would drive drunk you know uh there was a fear of getting caught of course there was a fear when I'm working at these people's houses and I'm and I'm getting drunk you know that they're going to walk in the door <laughs> um and yet it wasn't enough of a fear to prevent me from doing it it wasn't enough of a fear to prevent me from driving and all I can say to this day, all I can say is praise the Lord that he watched over me and kept me from those yet. Um, he, he prevented me from going to jail. He prevented me from getting into an accident and killing somebody. He prevented me from all of these things that could have happened. Um, and, that, and that's all I can say is it's just by the grace of God that they didn't. Because I can't explain it any other way. Um, there, it's it's a miracle. <laughs> it really is a miracle. Yeah. What is forgiveness in your words? Oh boy, um, it's having the compassion and the understanding to know that we are all only the best that we can be at any given moment. Um, we need to have that understanding and being able to put ourselves 
seats in other people's positions, get that different perspective to see that they're doing the best they can with what they have to work with. Now, what they have to work with might be very little, and that might be it might be really a sad excuse for for living, but um, but they may not know better, you know. And if if Jesus can forgive them, so can we. Um, and and ultimately, it is up to God, you know. I can only forgive within my own capacity to forgive. I am not going to be able to forgive the way God does. So having that understanding and knowing that I'm forgiving this person as Jesus would, more or less, when he was here on this earth, um, that's, yeah, that's what it is for me. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, is there any closing note that you wanted to say to audience? Just, um, you know, you, you all are not alone. You never are, ever. He's got you. He's got you. Um, but along with that, there are many other people who have gone down this road before you who can share their experience, strength, and hope with you and help you to overcome. And that's, I mean, really, isn't that what we're all here for anyway? Okay, thank you for tuning in. And you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.